So guys, I'm going to start with a video clip this morning. And this is from one of Kathy's and my favorite movie. It's very short. It's about a minute and a half. And just to give you some context for it, this is a funeral service that you're seeing. There's an oddity behind the story that I won't go into, but the guy, Jackie, that's sort of eulogizing, he's actually not free to speak about the guy that's going to be buried. And that's sort of the element of the story, movie that I'm not going into. <clears throat> so he's got to come up and say something. And so as he's standing there, his good friend Michael Sullivan is sitting in the front row. And so he sort of waxes about the friendship, the life he's known with his old friend, Michael Sullivan, sort of along the line of a eulogy. And you'll, you'll see. How many of you guys have seen this movie? <laughs> it's called Waking Ned Divine, and it is a delightful movie. And this uh, key part about friendship, and we're going to be talking about friendship this morning on the series we're in. Friends are in short supply. That's always been the case for a number of reasons. They're certainly in short supply today. And while friends is used, sort of it's been watered down, right? The use because of social media. I have a thousand friends, or I have two thousand friends, which really means I have no one that knows me well. We're going to be talking about friendship, and when we, when we think about friendship, I don't mean that you see me on a Sunday morning and you know a name and a face, so I'm talking about at least these elements. Uh, you know me and you know me well, or I know you and I know you well, and even though I know you well or you know me well, I care about you, I care about what happens to you. As someone who will tell us hard things, others won't. There's a cost to friendship, that would be one of them. You see something in your friend's life and you're willing to tell them something that no one else is going to tell them. Someone that you share some important values or concerns with. Uh, sort of a brief tangent. You know, when you go through the Greek New Testament, there's different words for love. And so if it's erotic love, it's a man and woman looking at each other face to face. It's sexual, it's intimate. But the term for friendship love is phileo love. So the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, it comes off that Greek term. And in phileo or friendship love, it's two people who are shoulder to shoulder. They're looking forward together. They share something in common. They're working towards or they're going towards or they hold in common. So good friends, we share some of the same concerns or values. As someone that we can inconvenience and know it's okay. You know, there's a saying that uh, family or home is the place that when you get there, they have to let you in. It's my home, you're my family, you have to let me in. We sort of take that for granted more often than not. But related to friendship, do you have someone that you can inconvenience and know it's okay because of your friendship? You show up, you've got a problem, it's late at night, it's early in the morning, whatever. And you know they'll be there for you because of your friendship. That, that's what we're talking about this morning. Do you have a friend like that? And frankly, is it even possible for us as an individual, am I able to even consider being a friend like that? Uh, I had an experience several years ago, and I'll tell you before I forget, I've been convicted personally in the last several years uh, that I had been incapable of being a good friend for most of my adult life, that having come to Christ, my 
my drive was to sort of work hard, be diligent, be faithful, and that will take you a long way down the road. And, and on one hand, that's all good, but the flip side was, if you're hyper-responsible, if you're too busy, if you take on too much work, what you'll find is you don't have any friends because you don't have time for friends. Because friendship requires time. There's a commitment there. Without which, you just can't, you can't be a good friend. You, ha you can't have good friends. I had an occasion in high school, my senior year, most of the guys on our basketball team, uh, we were good friends, and our priorities in life were basketball and parties. Parties and basketball. The order could change, but the two, the two were side by side. And we had a very talented team, and we were good friends. We'd spend a lot of time with each other as friends and playing basketball. And uh, we had a crushing defeat at home. We expected to win every game we had. We, we were talented, and we could have. But we had a crushing defeat at home, and I felt personally responsible for it. And I was down. I was despondent for sure. And so there was a party after the game. This was normal. We played hard on the court, then we went and we partied hard at our friend's house, our older friend's. Anyway, I won't go into that. <clears throat> so the guys are saying, after the loss, in the locker room, see you at so-and-so's house for the party. And I sort of let on like, yeah, I will. But I had no intention of going there, none, none at all. I was too despondent, too discouraged. So I went straight home. So a friend came by the house. One of the guys on the team came by the house. And it wasn't long after I'd gotten home. I thought, man, that was short. I said, well, how's the party? And he said, well, I didn't go to the party. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, I knew you weren't going to the party. And so I came to get you on the way. Now, guys, we were unholy. <laughs> and we, we were the bad kind of We were the kind of friends you don't want your kids to hang out with, okay? <laughs> but, but we were friends to each other. And I was floored. I was quietly floored that this guy knew I wouldn't be there, that I was just letting on. He knew I wouldn't be there, and he cared enough to come and get me. And, and that was this guy. That was my friend Joe Cassidy. Yeah. I don't know if Joe's here this morning. If he is, he can be embarrassed, and that's fine. I didn't tell him I was doing this. So that was Joe. Uh, the first time I met Joe Cassidy, I was in uh, grade school, and we played against each other in basketball. He was at Most Pure Heart, I was a holy name, and he was the center and I was the center. And that's how we get to know each other. D and didn't know Joe well, but got to Hayden High School, freshman year, sat down at a lunch table, and Joe's across the table from me, and I meet Joe to chat with for the first time. So I told my mom when I went home later that day, I said, hey, I met Joe Cassidy at school today. And she told me things about Joe that I never knew. She said, well, Joe Cassie was born two days after you at St. Francis Hospital. You guys were in the infant nursery together. I, I never knew. And she said, and by the way, our, she said, I shared the same room with his mother, with Jean Cassidy, who was this lovely, lovely lady that put up with yahoos like me when we, when we were teenagers. And th this was back in the day when, you know, if you were a mom and you went to the hospital and you delivered today, it's like you deliver and you're done and they get you out. But you know, back in the day, that was a mom's vacation. Having a baby was a vacation. So you spent a week in the hospital. I don't mean delivery was easy. I mean they spent a week in the hospital before they'd go face the other kids at home. You know, this was a Roman Catholic hospital. Lots of, lots of kids. <laughs> mom, let's see, I was six. So mom was going home to five kids. A week in the hospital is a good, good gig. 
So she and Jean were talking together. So Joe and I started, we had no idea. Two days apart, same hospital, same nursery. Moms chat with each other, meet each other in high school. And we've basically been friends ever since. Off and on a little bit, different places we've lived, different things we've been involved with. We live three doors apart from each other on 26th Street today. Joe and I get together for coffee and basically try and share, be vulnerable, what's going on, what do we need to pray for, etc. I feel very blessed to have a friend like Joe Casty in my life, and I hope he could say the same for me, though I'm not going to ask. I'm, I, <laughs> don't, don't you ask him either, okay? So... <laughs> This is all to talk about friendship in the context of the series we've been in, the Heroes and Villains series. This is the 27th message. And we're talking about Jonathan, the son of Saul, this morning. And if you, if you raise his name, it, it, it's almost uh, expected that you bring up the issue of friendship. You know, what's Jonathan, the son of Saul, like he's known for his Friendship, But boy, when you read his story, you realize there's a good reason for that. He has got to be, I think, in the pages of the Bible, the, the key paradigm or the key example of what Christ-like friendship looks like. Remember, the whole series is about looking at heroes of faith in the past to see what faithfulness in the image of Christ looks like. And Jonathan is just this outstanding example of Christ-like faithfulness. In fact, the more you look at his story, the more times you see this looks like Jesus, this looks like Jesus, this looks like Jesus. So, you know, two things that we want to happen through the series. One is we simply see more of Christ, right? So the whole series is about Christ is the ultimate hero. And so when we look at heroes of faith, we want to see the, the life of Christ in those heroes of faith so that we see Christ more fully. That's the big deal. We're drawn to Christ more fully. But also, because we're Christians and because God's work in the life of a Christian is to reproduce the life, the character of Christ, we not only want to see Christ, but we want to be drawn more fully into His image in our own transformation, in that work of sanctification where the Holy Spirit's making us more like Jesus. So when you look at Jonathan, what you see is this Christ-like faithfulness in the way of friendship at a really phenomenal level. And you know, he's one of those examples, I'll forget the name of the first king, but sometimes in the list of the kings, you'll see a father that's absolutely wretched, and he'll have a son that's absolutely great, or vice versa. And what you've got here is Saul. You remember we looked at Saul as a carnal man. He's a man after the old sinful life. He can't do anything right because he has no regeneration. Everything he does is wrong. Jonathan's complete opposite. He is absolutely the epitome of a regenerate man who's faithful in the ways of Christ. The story takes place from about 1050 to 1010 BC. That's the period in which his dad, Saul, is king. And Israel occupies the, oh, most of the land of promise, maybe half or so. And when his story takes place, if you remember along the Mediterranean coast, I didn't include a map today, the Philistines are along the Mediterranean coast, Israel's inland, and sort of the, the border or the line between them goes back and forth depending on who's more successful in their warfare. So before we get in, the main point to consider as you go through this morning is this. Jonathan's Christ-like friendship to David shows us what real friendship can be and should be like. So hopefully we're better friends to others. 
And then points us to David's greater son, Jesus, the best of all possible friends. So we're asking ourselves as we go through, do we know Jesus as the ultimate, not only savior, but friend? And do we, and are we even capable of displaying Christ-like faithfulness in our friendship to others? If you've got a Bible, great. You can open to 1 Samuel 14. If you don't, you can use a pew Bible, and I think this is page 234. So Jonathan just comes out of the blue in the story of Saul and David. His, he's introduced in 1 Samuel 13, and it just tells us, doesn't, doesn't tell us about Saul's sons or when he was born or any of that. It just says that Jonathan went up and he, he took over, he defeated a Philistine garrison. Because the border there is between the two countries, the Philistines have set up strongholds where they're keeping the Jews in check. And so he goes in and defeats the Philistine garrison. Well, in chapter 14, we get more of the same, and that's where we'll pick up. Starting at verse 6, and basically there's a Philistine garrison on an exposed high area. They're below that garrison. Jonathan says to the young man who carried his armor, Hey, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, the, the Philistines. And listen, listen to the language. It may be that the Lord, and Lord is all caps in your Bible. That means it's Yahweh. It's the covenant, personal, proper name for God. It may be that Yahweh will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord, Yahweh, from saving by many or by few. That's a guy of confidence, isn't it? He says this. It doesn't matter how many are for us. It doesn't matter how many are against us if God is for us. You can preach that on another day, right? That God could save if there's just two of us or God could save if there's an army. It doesn't matter. If God's for us, we'll get the victory. So his armor bearer says to him, do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Jonathan is the kind of guy who engenders loyalty and confidence in others. He trusts in the Lord. He's confident in God, and therefore he elicits that kind of response you see from his armor bearer. Verse 8, so Jonathan says, this is the plan. We're going to cross over to those Philistines. We're going to show ourselves to them. If they say, wait until we come to you, we're just going to stand here and do nothing. We'll wait. But if they say, come up to us, we'll go up because Yahweh has given them into our hand. And this is the sign. So they don't know what our plan is, but we do. So they showed themselves to the Philistines. The Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes. They've hidden themselves in. Ha, ha, ha. They think it's a joke. Uh, they hail Jonathan and his armor bearer. And they say, come up to us and we will show you something. Now, again, they're thinking this is humor at these little Jewish guys' expense. So Jonathan says, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And notice he doesn't say into my hand or into our hand. He says into the hand of Israel. This is a humble guy also. This isn't about him and his name or his honor. He says God is defeating them for our people. So Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet and his armor bearer after him. And they, the Philistines, fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer. It goes on to say they slayed 20. Two guys slayed 20 and they overcame many more. One to 10 ratio because God was on their side. Now, what is this? What is this passage that does show us his loyalty, his courage, his confidence, his faith? It shows us all that. 
But what does this have to do with friendship? Because that's really what we're looking at this morning. And this is the deal. You can't be a good friend to others if life is all about you. I can't be a good friend to you if life is all about me. Jonathan is able to be the kind of friend Scripture records him to be to David because his life is founded on faith in God. He loves God. He trusts God. And because of that, his life isn't merely about himself. It's bigger than that. So when he says, God will give us the victory, he doesn't say me and he doesn't even say us. He says Israel. He can be a selfless man because his life is founded on faith in God. And what you'll find is, if you, if you have no God, if your God is little, if you don't have something compelling that's bigger than your life, everything you do and everyone you interact with is all about making you feel okay about you, about me feeling okay about me. And guys, in that culture, you can't be a good friend to me and I can't be a good friend to you. And what happens is you see that faith in a God that's bigger than us, that has our back, that faith liberates us horizontally to be friends to each other. And that's what you've got in the life of Jonathan. There's a reason that we see this before we see his friendship to David. If, we don't, if, if God isn't our God, if our view of life is too small, we will be small friends to each other. If we serve a big God and that big God has our back, we can afford to be friends to others, sacrificially, self-givingly, just like Jesus was for us. I love this little ditty. This is called The Tea Party by Jessica Nelson North. See if you can relate to this. Have you heard this, by the way? I had a little tea party this afternoon at three. It was very small, three guests in all, just I, myself, and me. Myself ate up the sandwiches while I drank up the tea. It was also I who ate the pie and passed the cake to me. That's life for lots of us, guys, even in ways that we don't know that we think we're okay, and it's like, nope. If you find that I I need this from that person, or I've got to have this, or I've got to have that, it's probably because life is still all about us because we don't have Jonathan's kind of faith. We don't have that kind of life. We're not able to give ourselves away to others. Think about this before we move on. Do we have a vision of God? Do we have a vision of God's grace, of his mercy for us, like Jonathan's, that liberates us to give our lives away. You have to have a vision bigger than yourself. You have to have a sense that I'm taken care of. I can afford to give myself away in friendship to others. And if I don't, is there a fear? Is there a controlling desire? Is there something that God wants to simply free me from? Usually we know if there is. God will show us. God will tell us. Is there something that's holding me back from that kind of faith and that kind of Ability to be a friend. If there is, what is it? What does God want me to do about that? So this is into the text that shows, that highlights Jonathan's friendship. And guys, it's just a few verses. This is 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 5. We'll look at one other passage. But really, there's just three verses here that I want to key in on because they're the ones that show us most clearly what kind of a friend Jonathan was. Uh, 1 Samuel 18, uh, 17 is David and Goliath. But put this in perspective. David was delivering the groceries to his brothers. And his brothers were with Israel's armies faced across the valley of Elah with the Philistines on the other side. 
David's just the runt of the litter, the youngest boy that dad can do without to take the cheese and the wine and the bread up to his brothers and to some of their commanders in the army. He's not dressed well. He's been with the sheep. He probably stinks. He stinks and he doesn't look good. He's just there on a mission to take the stuff to his brothers. And along the way, he takes down a giant with a sling and the stones, right? That's just happened. And this is what follows next. Verse 1, as soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So we don't know how old Jonathan is, older for sure. He's more important in the life of Israel at this point. Remember, David's already been anointed as the king, but nobody knows it. Nobody, Jonathan doesn't know it. Saul certainly doesn't know it yet at this point. He's already been anointed, but no one knows it. Jonathan loves David. It says as his own soul. That sounds familiar to me. Maybe it does to you. Jonathan loves David as he loves himself. Does that sound familiar? Jonathan is a paradigm of a perfect man in the Scripture. So when Jesus says, if you render the law down to its essential elements, what are you supposed to do? You love God and you love your neighbor. And what do we see about Jonathan? He loves God and he loves his neighbor. He loves God fully, and David is his neighbor, and he loves David as his own soul. Not only that, but remember, he doesn't know. Again, he's unaware of the relationship David has with God, but he loves the one that God loves. David is God's anointed one. He is the king that God envisions for Israel. He is the one that not only Christ will come from, but that we're supposed to see elements of Christ in and through David. So Jonathan not only loves his neighbor, but he loves the one God specifically, particularly loves. And what you'll find, the life of Christ at work in us, we not only love God, we love our neighbors, and we love those whom God loves. Now, we know God loves the world, okay? I'm good with that. God so loved the world, he gave his son. Part of our love should be for those absolutely who are not in the faith. They're not in the body, and they need to be. But you don't want to turn your back on the family members that are your brothers and sisters in faith. Some of us are great about loving the unlovely. Others are great about loving the body. We're supposed to love both. (laughs) That's what you see displayed here in Jonathan. He loves both. Friends are bound by the bonds of love. The first thing is Jonathan loves David. And by the way, Scripture and God wasn't embarrassed to say Jonathan, a guy, loved David God's man as well. Our culture has become just so confused, corrupted with the whole notions of friendship and love and all those things that it's hard to to keep things straight sometimes as we read this. But Jonathan loves David as he loves himself. The other thing is this. Look at verse 3. Now remember, as far as anyone knows, Jonathan is the greater, David is the lesser. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. So actually, there's three times in which, in their story, Jonathan makes or confirms or reiterates a covenant with David. At this point, Jonathan is the more important, more powerful, more socially prestigious person. And he bows down, so to speak. He reaches down to make a committed covenant with David to say, I will never harm you. I will never harm anyone that belongs to you. 
I will always bless you and I will bless anyone that's connected to you and your family. He didn't have to. He loved David, but he went a step further and he told him, I'm committed to you and you can count on me. I'm here for you and I will never do anything except bless you. I'm here for you and I'll bless you. I will never harm you. When you get to the third time, the reiteration of this covenant, it's in chapter 23, verse 17. Jonathan says this to David. So time has transpired and the story doesn't tell us how he came to this realization. But Jonathan says to David, you will be king over Israel and I will be next to you. He's not next to him because he dies. He's killed in battle. But, but think of the words. Saul assumed Jonathan, is his, his eldest son, is the next king. Jonathan looks at his friend David and says, I know you're going to be the next king, and I'm good with that. And I just want to be there with you at your side. That'll be great. Selfless, no envy, no recrimination, no jealousy. One of the things you'll find about friends is friends share a commitment to each other, and they can afford to rejoice in what their friend gets, whether they get the same thing or not. Can I rejoice with my friends when they're blessed in a way I am not? Again, is my life big enough? Is enough of the life of Christ in me that I can afford to rejoice when others are blessed in ways I may not be and may never be? Uh, the fourth is in material possessions. Uh, verse 4, and this is uh, visually really compelling. Remember, David's a young guy. He's a teenager, certainly. He's probably not as big as Jonathan. He's not well-dressed. Again, he's come from the sheepfolds. And, and what does Jonathan do for him? Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. Jonathan literally took the cloak off his back and put it on David. You know, we talk about the shirt off our back. That's exactly what he did. David is not dressed well. Again, he's come from taking care of the sheep. He was in his grubbies. Maybe if you and I are painting at home, he looks something like that. Somebody says, we can do better than that. Here, have this. That's what Jonathan did for him. He also gave him his weapons, all his armor. Think of this for a minute. Samuel tells us that back in those days, the Philistines controlled basically metallurgy. So basically the Jews have little, if any, swords or spears because the Philistines won't make them for them and they won't sharpen them. What have they got? They've got farming equipment. When they go to battle, they go to battle with farming equipment. David had no weapons for war. That's why he used a sling and a stone. And Jonathan gives him everything he needs to succeed as a warrior. And that's what the story says. He becomes the leader of the army of Israel. And it's the weapons of warfare Jonathan gave him that become the instruments he uses to lead Israel's armies against the Philistines. So you've got here, Jonathan sees what David doesn't have, and he basically, he says, let me help you. And he gives him the clothes off his back, strips himself to give David the clothes off his back, and then he gives him all the weapons of warfare David needs to succeed as a warrior as well. Friends, provide for each other's needs. And then last, this is from 1 Samuel 19. Turn the page in your Bible or whatever it takes, one chapter up. This is from verses 1 through 6. I'll keep this part brief just for time. 
Saul's determined again to kill David. And he's told the servants and he's told Jonathan. And Jonathan stands up and defends David to Saul. And you remember in another element of this story, when Jonathan says something about David that Saul takes wrong, Saul throws a spear at his son to kill him because he's ticked at David's attitude, excuse, at Jonathan's attitude towards David. So here, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said, don't let the king sin against his servant David. He's not sinned against you. His deeds have brought you good. He took his life in his hand. He struck down the Philistine, Goliath. The Lord worked a great salvation. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then would you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and he swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as before. So you got two elements here. One is that Jonathan defends David. David's being falsely accused, and Jonathan defends him. And the other thing is he reconciles him. And one of the things you see here is that friends stick up for other friends. Now, in this situation, David's being accused of wrongs he hasn't committed. And so Jonathan tells the truth in defending David, tells the truth to Saul, but he also reconciles the two because David come back. He's only temporarily because Saul's losing his sanity, of course. But temporarily he comes back and they're restored. That relationship that was broken is restored. You remember that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that those sons of God would be the peacemakers. You see exactly that element at work in Jonathan's life. So you've got here in his life this epitome of a godly friend. He trusts and loves God. He loves his neighbor. He's a model of commitment. He provides for David, his friend, the things David couldn't have at least at the time provided for himself. And he stands up for his friend when he's falsely accused. Stands up for his friend verbally when he's falsely accused. That's a good friend. That's a good friend. Do you have, just for a moment, just pause. Do you have a friend like that? Do you, have a, do you, do you think you have a friend like that? And are you that kind of friend to anyone else? Are we even able to be that kind of friend to anyone else? Now, I hope that all of us have a friend like Jonathan. I hope that we're all capable of being a friend like Jonathan. But at the end of the day, all of us still have feet of clay, right? We still sin, we still blow it. And even if we're at our best through most of life, you and I are going to die. And our friends are going to die. In other words, our ability to be a friend is not without qualification. We're, we're not going to be able sometimes to be the friend we, we'd like to be or we wish we could be. And sometimes time, distance, death, all of those things interrupt our ability or others' ability to be friends to us. But Scripture says there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There is a friend that loves at all times. And so we want to take those key elements from the life of Jonathan and we want to use them as the lens to look at Jesus Jonathan fought God in Israel's battles, and what do you see is Jesus. You remember, it doesn't look like it, but when Jesus comes in the incarnation, when he dies on the cross and he rises from the dead, that was the ultimate act of warfare, wasn't it? Because through his resurrection, his death and resurrection, he vanquishes all the spiritual forces that were arrayed against us. He not only covers our sin, 
but he vanquishes the foe that seeks to wreak violence and death and destruction in your life and mine and everyone else who's ever been born. He is the ultimate warrior, Jesus is. And not only that, you think of Revelation 19, this imagery of Jesus as the coming king, the second coming. He doesn't, he's not coming with a little baby in a stall. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And he comes as a violent king who puts down all opposition. Jesus is the ultimate warrior. A second, just as Jonathan initiated a friendship with David, guys, you know we don't go to Jesus. You know Jesus comes to us, right? You know, in Matthew and Luke's gospel, I think the references are on your study sheet. Uh, people spoke about Jesus in a way they thought would be a put down because they called him a friend of sinners. But of course, that's exactly what he was. And that's what he remains today to you and me. We're not nice, clean people that go up to Jesus and say, hey, buddy, let's be friends. Jesus is the one that initiates to us while we are sinners. While we were yet sinners, God's demonstrated his love towards us. Jesus knows us in our worst, guys, right? He didn't become your friend or mine because we were lovely people. He met us right where we were at. He died for us anyway. He's become not only a savior, but a friend, knowing full well what's in your heart, what's in mine, the sins we've committed in the past, the sins we'll commit in the future, and he's initiated towards us anyway. Hard to find a friend better than that. A third, Jonathan loved God and his neighbor as fully as a human could, but Jesus does so perfectly. You think of Jesus' words, especially in John's gospel, you know, I'm always pleasing the Father. Whatever he wants, that's what I do. And he loves us perfectly. No one could have loved us redemptively like Christ. He, he did what we absolutely needed most. We needed sins taken care of. We needed life. We were dead in trespass and sin. We needed someone that could give us life. He's the only one that could. And he loved us while we were still in our sins. He gave us what we needed most. Uh, fourth, he instituted a covenant, Jonathan did, with David to bless him and not to harm him. And today, isn't it lovely that we live under what's called the new covenant? Remember in John 1, I think it's 14, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And he says to the disciples the night of the Last Supper, uh, this blood is the blood of the new covenant. You and I live in a covenant they I could hardly dream of in the Old Testament. And Jesus has covenanted with us, and he basically says, I will never harm you. None of your sins will be held against you. I am always for you. I'll be for those whom you love. I'll put my, my desires, I'll put my law in your heart. He made the new covenant, we didn't. He's brought us into the covenant he's made and said, I'm here to bless you. I'll never harm you. Everything I do in your life is to bless Uh, fifth, I love this. Jonathan gave David the robe off his back and the weapons of warfare. And you think of Jesus. Uh, Jonathan stripped himself. Jesus was stripped naked to be crucified on the cross. You remember the cross was meant to be not only painful but humiliating. I, I love this in part because when I think of my own shameful acts or thoughts, Jesus took my sin and my shame on the cross. Hebrews 12.2 says... He despised the shame. Here he is, spread eagle, hung between heaven and earth, bearing our sin and our shame. And he says he just despised it. No big deal. I can do this and I'm going to go on. 
took our sin and shame, covered us up with his own righteousness, took our sin away, and then closed us with his perfect righteousness. When you read something like Romans and it keeps talking about the language of justification and righteousness, that's the perfect standing we needed so that God could pour out his love and affection on us. And that's what Christ did. He removed the impediment to God's love for us when he died for our sins and clothed us with his righteousness. And he equips us at his expense with weapons of warfare. Guys, we are not, on one hand, sometimes Christians are lambs to the slaughter, Romans 8. You think about throughout history, there's been persecution and martyrdom that continues today, absolutely. But Christians in that same passage are said to be more than conquerors. If you kill a Christian, what have you done? You've just sent him home. You've just sent him to -to face-to-face fellowship with Christ and his Father, unmitigated joys and pleasures forever. That's a pretty good day. Yeah, I'd take that today. My wife didn't like it when we were newly married, and I'd say, I want to be a martyr. Hold on. Hold that thought. Let's pause that. Uh, Yeah. Uh, But he's equipped us. And what I'm thinking of here is, is our ability to engage in the warfare today that matters, and it's spiritual, it's not physical. So 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not merely mortal or human, but they're divinely powerful, so much so that you can pull down strongholds. You think about Jonathan and the Philistines on the rocky garrison. Well, spiritually, that's what we're able to pull down. We have victories just like Jonathan did, but they're spiritual, and what we're pulling down our ideas, doctrines, teachings, concepts with the truth. You get to Ephesians 6 and you see the Roman soldiers, basically an image of the weapons of battle, you know, the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, etc., both offensive and defensive. God has given us everything we need to succeed and to win in the spiritual battle on earth. Now, Jonathan renounced his claim to the throne. Jesus left the glories of heaven to save us and last Jonathan mediated David's relationship with Saul. Jesus says, 1 Timothy 2.5, he's the only mediator between God and man. You need someone to restore you to the Father? Remember, uh, Jonathan restored David to Saul. Well, we need someone to restore us to the Father. That's Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.15. And when we sin, we have an advocate. We have a defense attorney between the Father and us, and it's Christ the Son. If you don't know Jesus as your friend and your Savior, you can, right? He's died for the sins of the world. Jesus' death has covered your sins and mine. And all we do is say yes to the glorious offer of salvation Jesus makes to us every day and everybody else in the world. Sins are covered. 1 John 2, 2, he died for the sins of the world. We say yes with the arms of faith. Jesus becomes Savior and friend. Listen to this uh, one verse and refrain from an old hymn. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me. Foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. Why don't you stand with me if you would. We're going to read from John 15. This is a passage in which Jesus talks about his friendship. We'll read it. The worship guys are going to come up and We'll worship in song here in just a moment. Read with me if you would. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, 
that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you.